and welcome to Deep Dive, brought to you by NATO's Defense Education Enhancement Program. I'm your host, Dr. Sajan Gohel. Each episode, we speak to experts and practitioners in international security and defense, counterterrorism, and geopolitical current events to gain insight into the most pressing matters of global affairs. In this episode, we speak to Dr. Asfandia Mir, a senior expert in the Asia Center at the United States Institute of Peace. Dr. Mir has held various fellowships, including at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University. His research interests include the international relations of South Asia, U.S. counterterrorism policy and political violence, with a regional focus on Afghanistan and Pakistan. Dr. Mir's research has appeared in multiple peer-reviewed journals. He is also a prolific op-ed writer for newspapers and magazines. Dr. Asfandia Mir, very warm welcome to NATO Deep Dive. Uh, thank you for having me, Sajid. It's now been a year since the West pulled out of Afghanistan and the Taliban have regained control of the entire country. There have been uh, many deeply concerning developments in Afghanistan during this past year. What in particular worries you? So, uh, uh, first of all, I, I think um, uh, the rise of the Taliban was a surprise to many on the outside in the international community. I think the, the U.S. government didn't anticipate that the Taliban would return to power even before the U.S. military withdrawal. Uh, but others who also now appear to have been surprised include the Taliban themselves. Uh, I think uh, they didn't uh, think that they would be uh, running a country uh, as early as they, they had to. And so uh, there's been a real struggle. Uh, I think they very quickly transitioned from a mood of triumph and victory to uh, a lot of concern about uh, how, to, uh, how to run a country. Uh, and it appears that in the last um, eight to 10 months, uh, that concern has only grown, it has deepened. And uh, you know, many in the Taliban uh, feel that uh, that they are they are really struggling. Uh, the people are not happy with them. Uh, their internal politics is uh, is also under a lot of stress. Um, and so, in that sense, I think uh, there's a real concern I have. I think others do as well that there can be a state failure uh, in in Afghanistan. We were able to avoid the worst case scenario of a multi-party civil war. And which I think is, uh, you know, was for the better uh, because that would have led to a lot of violence. Uh, but in some ways, we are back to, uh, to the, uh, you know, to to that concern that uh, maybe this regime uh, is pushing Afghanistan in a direction where its very weak state structure and apparatus uh, is going to ultimately. Uh, collapse. So that's concern number one. I think the Taliban's relationship uh, with several terrorist groups uh, endure. Um, uh, I think that's not a surprise, but still it's interesting and worrying to see how they are uh, going about managing those relationships. So they have a relationship with a transnational group like um, Al-Qaeda uh, to this day. And we can talk about how they're navigating that relationship later on. 
but then they have relationships with all these uh, regional jihadis from the pakistani taliban to um to various central asian jihadi groups um you know relationships that they are very uh, committed to um and um and you know they're they're dealing with all of these groups politically um and uh, and you know and by continuing to support these groups um uh, they are increasing the threat that um, that these groups pose uh, to the region and then the final concern is is of course the rights situation you know i don't think anyone um uh, you know including people who were advocating for the taliban uh, thought uh, that uh, the taliban were going to democratize Uh, they haven't done that so no surprise there uh, but their the treatment of women uh, i think is a is a particular concern um the fact that they're not letting young girls return to school uh is uh, is a big worry and this is despite the fact that there are some real voices within the taliban who uh, seem to be supportive i don't think this is just a case of good cop bad cop i think there's a real division within the movement on this issue and the fact that the you know the, the more regressive of the taliban leadership is prevailing on on this issue and they're able to keep the the schools closed i think that's a that's a big concern and it's uh, uh, it is ominous uh, about the kind of policies uh, they might enact in the in the future so you've touched upon several key themes that are each worrying uh in their own uh, standing issues of governance uh the role and ties to terrorist groups and the mistreatment of women and the basically state sanction of of misogyny which i'd like to break each one of those down as we continue our discussion but when we use the term taliban it's in many ways it's a generic term uh because there are so many different Taliban factions and not all of them get on uh, well together who are the real decision makers in Afghanistan right now amongst the the Taliban uh, entities so even among the close watches there remained con- considerable debate on who matters in the in the Taliban I think there's been a view uh, for a while that perhaps uh, the Haqqani network and Siraj Haqqani uh, are the most, uh, well, he himself and his family are the most important people in the movement and they're going to really shape the agenda of the movement. Then we started hearing about the Sadraners um, uh, dotted by you know people in the networks of uh, you know of the the founder of of the movement mullah umar his son um uh, and then we have heard a little bit more about the clerics uh who uh, you know the ulama perhaps they have more of a say in the day to day decision making i think what we are learning now is that especially in the last few months uh, that the leader of the taliban Mullah Hibatullah Khunzada uh, he is uh, extremely central um, to you know all the major decisions uh, that the group makes um he was generally seen as a figurehead of sorts that you know someone who stayed in the the background and who was just signing off on decisions that others in the movement were uh, were coming up with but we've heard 
you know, from him directly. Uh, he's recently spoke at a conclave of um, 3,000 or so ulama clerics, uh, senior uh, sort of tribal elders uh, from across Afghanistan, um, and in which he laid out his vision for the country, which is a pretty hardline one. I, you know, I think he essentially uh, argued that there's a clash of civilizations underway and the Taliban and their movement uh, and their jihadist ideology is on the one side and the West uh, is on the other and, and that and the Taliban should not um, be feeling the heat and pressure of the international community and there, there are always going to be costs of you know sticking to their their particular doctrine and belief system and uh, and they need to just um, stick it out uh, through uh, through tough times. Um, so Hebatullah seems to be very powerful. I think in and around Kabul uh, on the, the state machinery, Sirajakani is certainly very influential uh, and appears to, uh, to call the shots uh, on all issues related to international security, uh, excuse me, internal security. Um, and then um, I think uh, there's a role, an uh, important role being played by Mullah Yaqub, who is the son of uh, Mullah Umar. I think he's really um, uh, come into his own. Uh, he has a large following. He's very young, uh, but he's able to, um, uh, to, uh, to, you know, to bring his uh, perspectives and preferences on um, on issues related to foreign policy uh, and domestic politics as well. So this is important how you've uh, extracted these key individuals. And as you mentioned, the Supreme Leader of the Taliban spoke at that conclave uh, in which I think some 3000 clerics were present, all men, and uh, they were making decisions about the lives of Afghans, including uh, women. And this brings in one of the points that you had uh, addressed earlier when it comes to women's rights, girls' education, we've seen the Taliban effectively ban women and girls from public life. Misogyny seems to be part of their agenda, not necessarily surprising as that is who they were in the 1990s. They have reneged on promises that they would allow girls back to school, claiming that they don't have the resources to be able to do it. Uh, where are we heading when it comes to the rights of women in Afghanistan? Is this the Taliban basically constantly playing games and with the West because they know that the West is keen on rights of women to be restored and the Taliban perhaps hope that if they keep delaying it, that perhaps the West will just lose interest and they can continue to uh, spread their state-sanctioned misogyny? So I think uh, parts of the, the Taliban which engage with the international community have been, you know, if I'm, uh, if I put it politely, uh, they've been overpromising uh, to the West. Uh, I think uh, there was a consensus view within the, the internationals who were interacting with the Taliban back in March that uh, schools were going to be reopened. Uh, and uh, and that didn't happen on March 23rd. We got the edict uh, from the Supreme Leader that uh, you know, um, the schools can't be reopened. And they offered a justification for it. And ever since, um, uh, I don't think there's anything, um, uh, any of the, 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 the Taliban leaders who engage with the international community have been able to say 
which is convincing on this count. It appears that we are on a trajectory um, in which the, the current band will stay in place and uh, perhaps uh, harsher social policies will be enacted. And again, I will point you to some of the recent speeches of the Supreme Leader, uh, uh, and this last one was uh, on, the, on the eve of Eid, uh, in which, uh, again, you know, he pointed to the fact that uh, uh, they, they are going to have to implement um, what he refers to as hudud, and these are, uh, you know, these are judicial policies, uh, you know, the more extreme interpretation of uh, the Sharia. Um, uh, you know, he, he's saying that he's, they will have to ultimately implement those policies. And, and so I, I think more restrictions are in order. Uh, and the Taliban realized that they cannot roll out a lot of these uh, restrictions in one go and that they have to prepare the population. So in the minds of, uh, of say, the, the Supreme Leader and some of the clerics around him, uh, they are shaping the population to accept some of the, the stricter, harsher social policies uh, in, the, in the coming months and years. My heart sinks hearing what you're saying because effectively you're saying that the Taliban haven't even gone uh, as far as they want, that we are looking at more draconian policies that they want to implement uh, on women, including, as you talked about, the Hudud punishments, uh, which would be very, very disturbing to see enacted, especially now with today's age of social media, you could actually see very disturbing imagery appearing on social media challenge, uh, channels of women uh, being abused and violently uh, attacked uh, under the guise of uh, piousness and, and security. If we look at another entity that you had also spoken about, uh, the Haqqani Network, they are an internationally designated terrorist group and its leader Sirajuddin Haqqani is also a prescribed terrorist. Yet we are seeing interesting and equally disturbing developments take place with this group and of individuals. Surajuddin Haqqani, uh, during the war on terror, kept a, a very low profile. His appearance was hidden. His face was obscured often in photographs, probably because he didn't want to be identified and in fear of a counterterrorism operation. Yet now we see him everywhere. He is on uh, Taliban propaganda uh, media, He's at recruitment rallies. He's uh, even attending meetings with some uh, Western officials and even being interviewed by the international media. So are we witnessing the mainstreaming of the Haqqani network, the mainstreaming of Sirajuddin Haqqani? Are they becoming an accepted face now of Afghanistan? And I'll just add again, for those who aren't necessarily aware about Afghanistan, that this is a prescribed terrorist group and prescribed terrorists as part of that entity. Right. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, I'm here in the U.S. Uh, Siraj Kanyar, the group that he leads is designated as a foreign, foreign terrorist organization uh, by, by the State Department. So, so, yes, you know, the last decade and more, um, we learned that uh, Siraj Kani was uh, leading, um, you know, one of the main uh, 
outfits or subgroups within the Taliban responsible for some of the worst carnage, uh, violence, targeting of civilians uh, in the country. And now it is surreal to see him um, as, you know, as the de facto ruler of Kabul. And not only that, he's also become the main interlocutor uh, with, the, with the international community. Um, and in that sense, he has, you know, he has become more normal. He, I, 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 you know, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't attribute intentionality to the the role and status he has uh, he has come to attain. Uh, I'm not convinced that uh, there was a real effort at play uh, to you know to place him where he's at now. Um, but he is certainly more normal. I think diplomats meet him, uh, diplomats of various countries, and you know, not just um, you know, Pakistani officials. You know, Siraj Ghani and Pakistan have a, uh, or the Ghanis and Pakistan have a long-standing relationship. But but others, you know, I think UN officials um, see him as their main interlocutor, partly because he controls uh, security um, uh, in. You know, in in and around Kabul, I think uh, other officials, the Chinese foreign minister, made a trip to Kabul where he met with Siraj Ghani. And I, uh, my sense is that from the Chinese, even from the Chinese perspective, that was the more important meeting the Chinese foreign minister had uh, in Kabul. More recently, the Indians have been meeting with Siraj Ghani, and if you know anything about you know Indians and and the Haqqanis, that is, you know, quite a turnaround. The, the Haqqani network blew up the Indian embassy back in 08. Uh, but now it appears that the Indians have a line of communication with him as well. So all of this is to say that Siraj Ghani has become a fixture. He is uh, a central interlocutor. Um, uh, you know, of the international community with the Taliban. And when people want, you know, people on the outside want some kind of something done, um, they don't go to, uh, you know, the political office in Doha or the remnants of it or even the foreign minister. Uh, I think their instinct is to go to Siraj Khan, who's become somewhat... Um, uh, accessible. Now, why is that? Why is he seen as accessible? And I think part of it is that he uh, is a, he's showing himself to be a politician. He's, he's open to, in, to engaging and meeting with uh, people from the outside. He certainly carries a lot of authority and uh, in the promises and pledges he makes uh, people you know, people think that uh, he's able to deliver uh, on them. Uh, but even he faces uh, limits. Uh, you know, we, we, we have learned he's, for example, he's one of the people who's been promising uh, to, uh, you know, to various diplomats that the schools for girls will eventually be opened. Uh, and that hasn't happened. And one interpretation is that uh, he's been... Um, you know he's been he's been lying and that uh, this is you know, Taliban playing good cop bad cop, uh, but on the other hand, I, I think there are some reports to suggest that um, 
his power is also limited within the, the Taliban. It's very complicated, um, you know, internal political calculation uh, distribution. Um, I think he really struggles because he's from the east, and the southerners are just so much more stronger. Uh, and um, and while the supreme leader defers to him on all things security, when it comes to more you know doctrinal issues. Uh, uh, the supreme leader and his and his, uh, his close circle of clerics kind of have their way. So this is um, a, a dynamic that I don't think will go away anytime soon, where we will continue to see the Haqqanis play a very prominent uh, position in how the Taliban directs policy inside uh, Afghanistan. And we see it in, in odd ways too. For example, Siraj and Haqqani hiring out the five-star intercontinental hotel in Kabul and honoring suicide bombers, family members mm. who had served him uh, in the past. Ironically, some of them had been used to target that same hotel uh, several years uh, before. And now the Haqqanis, they, of course, retain very close ties to Al-Qaeda. And we've seen not just Al-Qaeda, but we've also seen their affiliate uh, Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent uh, and its uh, cadres come to Afghanistan. Uh, arguably, Ayman al-Zawari, the head of al-Qaeda, he's producing more content in the last year since the Taliban came to power in Afghanistan than al-Qaeda had been producing in the previous uh, decade. Uh, Amin al-Haq, uh, Osama bin Laden's bodyguard uh, in the 1990s, who helped bin Laden escape to Pakistan post-Operation uh, Enduring Freedom, uh, he, he's returned to uh, Afghanistan from Pakistan with a Taliban guard of honor. How do we evaluate the Haqqani Al Qaeda relationship? So, um, my read is that the Haqqani Al Qaeda relationship is uh, is strong. The Haqqanis are committed to protecting and shielding uh, Al Qaeda. Um, you know, Christina Manko recently interviewed uh, Siraj Haqqani, and of course, she asked a question about Al Qaeda and Afghanistan becoming a um, a base of, of terrorism and, you know, Siraj Akhani's response was instructive. Uh, he was um, he was careful in saying that we will not allow anyone to use Afghan territory, but he really tiptoed around the, the topic of Al-Qaeda. He didn't take any names or didn't even use the word Al-Qaeda. Um, so the Haqqanis in that sense uh, seem to have converged on this policy of, well, we're going to protect our friends, shield them, uh, you know, make Afghanistan uh, comfortable for them. Uh, but for now, we have to keep a lid on uh, on their external activity. And um, and that's partly a function of, of their, perhaps their continued diplomatic isolation. The fact that they need... Um, um, funds, uh, resources from the outside world to, to run the country, you know, that could be a motive. Um, but by and large, they are very committed to protecting their friends in Al-Qaeda. What has surprised me, though, is that there is another con constituency which is uh, very supportive of Al-Qaeda uh, and its cadres, uh, and that is the, uh, that's again, the supreme leader and some of the clerics around him. Um, again, I refer you to his speech on the eve of Eid. Uh, it's one of the speeches that uh, that I expect from an Al Qaeda leader than a 
a Taliban leader. The Taliban leader, at least in their um, in their public communication, tend to be more inward. Uh, they they have a nationalistic sort of strand. They, you know, they talk about the occupation, but tend to really limit themselves uh, and their articulation of um, uh, of beliefs about jihad in a way which is somewhat limited and confined to the region. Um, but the way the Supreme Leader uh, spoke, um, you know, he evoked this, uh, this, this unending war with the West, a, you know, a clash with no real bounds. I felt he was really channeling his, his inner Imam Zawahiri or Osama bin Laden. And and I think that is also um, informative on on how he thinks about uh, some of these uh, these legacy relationships uh, with groups like Al Qaeda, with the senior leadership of Al Qaeda. I think he's very committed to uh, protecting and and shielding uh, some of those people. So that's another key core constituency within the Taliban, which I think continues to. Um, to be friendly to the Taliban and to be sure there are others who don't want anything to do with Al-Qaeda. And uh, my understanding is that uh, some people have advocated that uh, we should we should get rid of them. They are nothing but a lot of trouble and they're the reason we lost our government uh, back in 01. And, and so, uh, you know, we, it will be hard for us to watch them, control them, um, and they will entangle us in their fights. I think this is a real perspective and view uh, held by important Taliban leaders, um, but they are overruled by some of these other figures, including the supreme leader of the movement. You've, in fact, uh, written a lot about um, Al-Qaeda's future, um, and it's in- interesting also that you uh, penned a, a, a joint uh, article with Professor Daniel Byman of how Al Qaeda is faring. It, it was an excellent uh, joint article, as all of your writings are, in which, in this, you spelt out where you agree and where you disagree with uh, Professor Byman on Al Qaeda's importance. And it was very uh, refreshing to see a, a spirited discussion, but with also a strong mutual respect. And uh, I don't think I, I'm giving any spoilers away if people haven't read it, but why do you think Al-Qaeda is still relevant and why should we still be worried? So, so I identify a number of factors uh, due to which I think Al-Qaeda is, a, is, is still a major threat and will be uh, a threat in the, in the coming years. But the two that I will highlight here are uh, you know, their level of resolve and commitment in their anti-American platform. Uh, I think that is a real concern for me, the fact that Al-Qaeda, despite being the most hunted organization in the world, has not shifted uh, in its political goals and objectives. The fact that it is willing to take on all these costs uh, and still maintain the fight against against the United States, I think that should tell us that these, um, uh, that, you know, that Al-Qaeda leadership means uh, when it when it says that it wants to keep up the fight, so that's fact number one. The, the other is, um, you know, over the last five to seven years, uh, Al Qaeda has not seen any meaningful fragmentation. If anything, we've seen Al Qaeda consolidate. So 
No major affiliate of Al-Qaeda has broken away from its orbit, uh, from, say, AQAP in Yemen to AQIM in North Africa to JNIM out in, out in Mali, Shabab in Somalia, AQIS in South Asia. You know, all major affiliates uh, of Al-Qaeda re- remain within the, the, the fold of, uh, of Al-Qaeda core led by Ayman al-Zawahiri, despite the fact that he's a um, he's not a charismatic leader uh, at all. And, uh, and so that's striking. And if you look at the trajectories of um, some of the, the individual franchises, again, you do not see a pattern of fragmentation, splintering, weakening. Um, Al-Qaeda seems to be holding out in each of the critical theaters. Uh, so, you know, the, the sum of the parts, uh, as I see it, is a very formidable one. And this group has weathered a lot. And at a time when U.S. counterterrorism um, uh, interest is waning, uh, I think resources are being, um, uh, are being pulled. Uh, there's, a, uh, there's a shift in priorities uh from south asia from key parts of the middle east and africa i think al-qaeda has a real opportunity uh and some of the factors that have constrained it over the last uh two decades i think they're not going to be in play which will offer this movement more room uh to pursue its uh, its political objectives yes i couldn't agree with you more i think that al-qaeda is enduring and it is seeking that opportunity to rebuild and reconsolidate uh, its ranks. Um, and something that Ayman al-Zawari, as you rightly say, he's, un- he's not very charismatic, but one thing he says consistently is about building safe bases. And in order to do that, they need to have those allies on the ground, like uh, the, in, the, in Afghanistan with the Taliban. We're looking at a very crowded field here of various different uh, jihadist groups. So to throw another one now into uh, the mix is ISKP or ISIS-K, depending on which acronym uh, we use. They seem to be almost a different type of ISIS affiliate because in many ways they are uh, comprising of Pakistanis and Afghans, uh, some of former Taliban individuals, there are some schools of thought that believe that they still have ties with uh, Taliban factions, including uh, the Haqqanis. And they also also c- continue to operate separately, too, and sometimes at low level will cooperate with different Taliban factions. Where are we at with uh, I- ISKP? Are they also a threat uh, internationally or are they mostly confined to the AFPAC region? So, so the U.S. government really sees ISIS KB as uh, as the more uh, imminent threat, uh, you know, in the short to medium uh, term. Uh, ISIS K is perceived to be the group which is uh, likely to attempt a major attack outside of South Asia. You know, perhaps in some part of Europe, uh, may attempt um, to. Um, to attack the U.S. homeland territory, that is the assessment. Uh, and this assessment comes on the back of um, ISIS-K's resilience. And this group was weakened quite a bit back in 2018, 2019, even early parts of 2020. And since then, it's been regenerating. 
um, in in Afghanistan and in a specific part of Afghanistan, you know, parts of the east and areas around uh, Kabul. Uh, and the strategy that this group pursues is, um, you know, I call it an outbidding strategy. The idea is that, uh, you know, it's a crowded military landscape, lots of different groups. Uh, so how uh, do you stand out is the question that some ISIS strategists seem to have asked themselves. And looking at their you know, cousins in Iraq and Syria, they've concluded that uh, spectacular attacks, uh, attacks that go against the most vulnerable um, uh, in the country, and then perhaps some type of regional activity, regional operations uh, can help them distinguish their brand, uh, drive the point home that they are more committed jihadists uh, than say the Taliban and Al Qaeda, uh, and uh, and the fact that um, you know the, uh, any kind of um, uh, that with this kind of violence they can attract Taliban rejectionist elements uh, in the region uh, generally, but in Afghanistan in in particular. So that's their that's their overall brand uh, and. And you know, and, and, and political trajectory, but uh, on the ground has been a real debate that perhaps ISIS is uh, or parts of it at least are a front of the of the Haganis. Uh, and you know, I've been looking at this question for almost over a uh, over for a few years now, and the best assessment I'm able to come up with is that. Um, there were elements of the Haqqanis that joined ISIS-KP. So, for example, the current leader of ISIS-KP is, uh, is an alum of the Haqqani network. Uh, he's from Kabul. Uh, he seems to have worked for the Haqqanis uh, back in the day. Um, but beyond that, um, there is limited uh, strong evidence to suggest that the Haqqanis or any other part of the Taliban have have actually directed ISKP. Instead, what I find is that the, the confrontation between the two is, is absolutely real. The Haqqanis are genuinely scared of ISKP because um, ISIS uh, is able to attract some of their fighters. Uh, they are drawn towards uh, ISIS. I have no doubt about that. Uh, there's also the reality that some of the allies of the Haqqanis, like the TDP, uh, look towards ISIS in case the Taliban abandoned them, say, due to Pakistani pressure. Um, so for all of these reasons, the Haqqanis um, and the Taliban uh, at large really see ISIS to be a problem. But the way they're dealing with the problem is, is you know, is not reducing the problem. They're making it worse. Their counterinsurgency slash, uh, you know, counterterrorism, whatever you want to call it, their, uh, uh, their approach uh, um, to countering ISIS is making the problem worse. Uh, they've gone for uh, collective punishment type tactics against the Salafi population in the east of the country. And that's alienating a lot of people. People are very insecure as well. Um, they fear violence by the Taliban. And that's pushing people closer 
to ISIS. I think more people want to join ISIS as a result of that. Um, so the Taliban are not making things easy, you know, either for themselves or for uh, for the region uh, when it comes to the threat posed by by ISIS. Tied to all of this is uh, U.S. President Joe Biden's over-the-horizon counterterrorism strategy uh, in terms of targeting potential threats and big groups uh, that pose a concern to uh, global security, plotting and planning attacks. Uh, Yet although there have been operations against, say, ISIS fighters in Iraq and Syria over the last year, there hasn't been a single over-the-horizon strike in Afghanistan since the Taliban returned to power. So is this an issue that um, it's just not viable to conduct an airstrike, especially as Afghanistan is surrounded by nations who are at best, say, agnostic towards the West? Uh, Mm. Or is this what you were mentioning about the fact that perhaps there is less focus on what's happening in Afghanistan because of, say, other distractions like uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine? I think um, there's a real capacity problem. Uh, I think um, uh, U.S. uh, and allied visibility to what's actually going on in Afghanistan is limited. Um, And, um, you know, Given how the withdrawal played out, uh, the threshold of um, of risk in terms of you know targeting going wrong uh, is is pretty high. Uh, so, uh, with the lack of intelligence and information as to what is actually happening in the country, uh, I think that it's it's possible that um, that the the CT machine doesn't have many targets lined up and it doesn't know. Uh, who to interdict or who to disrupt. Uh, so I think that's plausible. The other problem is, is what you were getting at towards the end of your question, this political one that, uh, you know, do we want to be doing this sort of uh, uh, of a military operation or activity in, in Afghanistan? Uh, I think um, there's no, there's some ambivalence of that. Uh, I think there is a determination that um, uh, that you know any kind of external attack or transnational attack uh, capability needs to be countered that might develop um, in in Afghanistan. But uh, at what point should it be uh, countered? You know, at, when it's sort of you know more nascent and early stage, or when it's more late stage. I don't think we have a good answer on that. Uh, and the administration in general doesn't want anything to do with the Afghanistan-Pakistan region. Uh, I think they've really moved on uh, uh, and they have many other fires to put out. You know, I think their hands are full in terms of the domestic political agenda and, and issues. And of course, uh, on, you know, on foreign policy, uh, the president was in the Middle East recently. It's, it's a very complicated situation out there, you know, with the, the Iran nuclear deal um, and tense relations with, with the Saudis. And then, of course, um, the war in Ukraine is uh, is going to go on for a while. And things are also getting fairly complicated with, uh, with China. So that means uh, that the administration um, just doesn't have the bandwidth right now, I think, for to think about 
uh, Afghanistan because you know even the, the the question of one strike is a pretty complicated one I, I think you know it's not the same as uh, taking out a target in say northwestern Syria uh, I think the dynamics in Afghanistan uh, given the history of U.S. involvement here, given the regional configuration, is uh, is a tricky one, and I don't think the decision to uh, to to take a shot is going to be taken lightly. It, it is going to be a major political decision, and I don't see the administration as having arrived, um, you know, at that stage where it is re- ready to even consider such a uh, such a major decision. Absolutely. And you mentioned about the lack of bandwidth that the Biden administration has to both Afghanistan and and also Pakistan. Let's look at the role of Pakistan because it's very significant. You can't talk about the Taliban and Afghanistan without discussing Pakistan. And many Afghans, but also uh, practitioners uh, in the West have blamed Pakistan for enabling the Taliban's return to power. Pakistan itself saw the benefit uh, in their minds that an Afghan Taliban seizing control in Afghanistan would prevent both Pashtun nationalist forces from re-emerging in the situation, but also stem the tide of other entities that operate from Afghan soil and uh, cause problems within Pakistan's own security apparatus, such as the Tariqi Taliban Pakistan, the Pakistan Taliban, the TTP who've carried out attacks on uh, not just the Pakistani military, but also on Chinese workers who've been part of the Belt Road Initiative uh, and Pakistan's specific uh, China project, which is known as the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, CPEC. Has Pakistan's uh, calculus on the Afghan Taliban backfired? Are the Afghan Taliban showing that they have their own agenda and will not bend to the orders of the Pakistani military? Or ultimately, will the uh, dictates of the Pakistani generals prevail over the Afghan Taliban? That's you know that's, that's a really important question, interesting question, um, and you know I've been looking at this issue for the last year now, uh, and my read is that um, the Pakistanis certainly wanted the Taliban to return to power, and they did everything they could uh, to make that happen. Um, but ever since the Taliban uh, have taken power, they have been disappointed. Uh, I think their initial disappointment started with the fact that, uh, that the Taliban were not able to convince much of the world to, to recognize them. Uh, I think the Pakistanis wanted the Taliban to uh, you know, put a strong foot forward, at least convince the Russians and the Chinese. They advocated for them. Um, but the Taliban were not able to convince them. And, uh, and I think that was the first source of disappointment uh, for them. They saw it partly, um, you know, as their own uh, feeling in some ways. Uh, but I, I think they also felt that the Taliban uh, were, uh, were not compelling enough and were not able to make the case. Uh, the second uh, problem that the Tal- Taliban uh, have uh, posed for them is um, is the challenge is their challenge to the Afghanistan-Pakistan border, what is called the Durand Line. 
I think the Pakistani hope and expectation was that the Taliban would be so beholden to them that, of course, they will accept the the border as sort of fait accompli, and you know, and 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 then you know this this contested border, which no government in Afghanistan has recognized for the last seventy years, uh, it would be a done deal, and that the Taliban would just accept the the territorial markings as the uh, as the international border. Instead, what the Taliban did was that they started challenging the border in certain places. Uh, Pakistan has erected a fence. They took down the fence uh, in key parts of the border, and that led to uh, some 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 escalation uh, in, along parts of the border, some some exchanges as well, and that was very disappointing to Pakistani strategists. And then the third, and I would say this is sort of the biggest problem. Um, in the in the relationship that has emerged since the Taliban's takeover, and that is the Taliban's support for the anti-Pakistan Tehrike Taliban Pakistan. Uh, now, if you followed Pakistan, you would know that uh, over the last many years, the Pakistanis had portrayed the TTP as uh, getting the help and support of the former Afghan government. Uh, you know, in in cahoots with the Indian government. Uh, and there was a pretty elaborate story that was, uh, you know, that was being fed to the Pakistani public that the Pakistan's TDP problem is in effect an India problem, that the Indians are backing these anti-Pakistan insurgents uh, who uh, then go on to fight the Pakistani state. Uh, but after August 15th, um, it emerged. Uh, I mean, I think close watches had known this all along, uh, but the Pakistanis uh, started seeing more clearly than ever that the Taliban were extremely committed to the TTP, uh, that they were supportive of this group. And since then, they have given the TTP de facto political asylum. Uh, in, in Afghanistan, the leadership of the TTP is uh, is treated like royalty in in, in Afghanistan. The, the chief of the TDP moves around in Afghanistan like a senior minister uh, of the Taliban's movement. The TDP has a sprawling infrastructure across the east of the country, which has expanded. Uh, the TDP is able to recruit people. Um, it is able to train them and then uh, the worst part from from the Pakistani perspective is that they uh, are able to uh, uh, push people across the border uh, who then uh, attack the, the, the Pakistanis. So the Pakistanis didn't expect that at all. Uh, they were, again, under um, operating under the assumption that the Taliban would take care of their TDP problem, either really limit the TDP or ideally carry out a crackdown uh, and, and expel this group uh, from Afghanistan. That didn't happen. Uh, so... For all of these reasons, I think the Pakistanis are disappointed. Uh, and I think they have cooled off on the Taliban substantially uh, compared to where they were at back in August uh, and September. You know, the sentiment that was echoed by the then prime minister of the country, Imran Khan, that the Taliban have broken the shackles of slavery. You know, I, I don't think um, uh, many senior uh, Pakistani officials hold that view anymore. But at the same time, uh, I don't think they're ready to turn uh, against uh, the Taliban. Uh, and this could 
B, because they feel stuck with the Taliban, the fact that you know, there's no real alternative. Uh, I think that's plausible. But I think what's more plausible is that they still see Afghanistan or a, the future of, uh, of, you know, of politics in Afghanistan in terms of the India-Pakistan rivalry and, uh, and, and potential Indian influence in, in Afghanistan. I think they calculate that, um, that if the Taliban were to somehow lose power or weaken in the country, then the Indians are going to gain uh, and you know what that definition of gain is. You know, it's it's, a, it's really in the abstract, but it's just it's this this fear and paranoia they have, and and that outcome is just unacceptable to them. So whatever costs that the, the Taliban are inflicting on them by either contesting the border or supporting the TDP, those costs still are relatively more acceptable to them. Than the prospect of a regime in in Kabul, which is more aligned uh, with with India, and and this is one reason why I think um, India's decision to reopen its embassy in Kabul is 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 an important one. I think it you know it really complicates the the Pakistani calculus. It's it's a, it's a variable, it's a dimension of, uh, you know, of their overall posture and policy towards the Taliban that they have not considered until now. If we stick with the TTP um, for just a little bit longer, they have engaged in talks with the uh, Pakistani military uh, on behalf of the Pakistani state. Now, both sides have intractable positions. The TTP are not going to give up their agenda, their weapons, uh, their infrastructure. And at the same time, the Pakistani state will not give in to the demands of what the TTP wants, which is the uh, removal of military uh, troops from the tribal areas, the reinstitution of the federally administered tribal areas and, and issues like that. So peace between these two entities, we've seen it fall apart in the past, and it was somewhat challenging to assume that it could be successful this time now, if talks fail between the TTP and the Pakistani military, we're potentially looking at a uh, a bigger problem for Pakistan than they could have ever imagined. And as you very rightly said, that the narrative that the Pakistani state used to uh, put out, especially under the Imran Khan government, that the TTP were controlled by the former Afghan government or by Indian entities, that's proved to be completely untrue because we've seen more attacks by the TTP in the last year than previously. Uh, is Pakistan's own internal security going to come under real threat if the talks fail between the TTP and the Pakistani military? So since the Taliban's takeover, the, the internal security situation uh, in Pakistan has deteriorated and it's uh, driven uh, partly by the growing violence of Baloch insurgents um, ethno-nationalist insurgents um, and separatists, uh, uh, but also the TDP. The TDP's violence uh, increased substantially uh, over the last year, and then um, in the first uh, few months, several months uh, of this year. And Pakistan's initial response was uh, was to carry out 
reads and uh, you know try to beef up the border. And then when their patients really started wearing thin, they uh, they responded with cross-border airstrikes in the month of April, uh, in which uh, you know coordinated airstrikes in different parts of eastern Afghanistan where they thought suspected that the TTP uh, was based, um, and that was in my view, meant to shake the Taliban, to get them to uh, put a leash on, on the TDP. Um, and what the, what the Taliban came back with was, well, we can, we can, we can try to uh, broker a, uh, a dialogue between you and the TDP, and uh, we can help you find a, a settlement of sorts. And since then, the Pakistanis and the TDP have been, have been talking. There's a ceasefire in effect right now. And as you note, uh, the TDP is making some very steep demands, um, and they are very firm in those demands. They want, um, you know, if I was to really boil it down, what, what their demands amount to is uh, is FATA being handed over to them, uh, and they are not moving an inch uh, from from those uh, from those demands. The Pakistani response uh, has was initially muted. They weren't. Um, really talking about it um, and but finally we've you know the, the government has come out with a position and admitted that they're talking to the TDP they're negotiating with them in Afghanistan with the help of the Taliban but they insist that um, they are going to not agree to a deal uh, that is in that contravenes the Pakistani constitution, or that uh, lead to changes in in the Pakistani constitution. Uh, they insist that uh, they are not going to reverse the merger of the Fata region uh, into mainland Pakistan. Um, but it is difficult to it is difficult for me to see the TDP moving uh, from some of the positions that it has laid out. And so there's a real deadlock. Uh, and this deadlock uh, is likely to lead to a collapse in, in the talks um, at some point, um, is, you know, is, is my sense. And once that happens, I think violence will go up. The TDP has a lot of capacity uh, in, in Afghanistan. It has used this recent ceasefire to infiltrate more of its fighters inside Pakistan. So it also has more capability and capacity for violence inside Pakistan. Uh, and for that reason, I think Pakistan's uh, internal security, uh, which is already uh, not in a good place, I think it can, it can get worse. Adding to the problems within Pakistan is the political tensions that have emerged uh, with uh, Imran Khan, the former prime minister, who was ousted from office in a vote of no confidence in Pakistan's uh, National Assembly uh, several months ago. And he's been in the headlines ever since, uh, consistently repeating this conspiracy narrative that he was removed due to U.S. Uh, interference, despite the fact that there is no evidence to uh, support that. Uh, there's no grounding in it whatsoever. Yet Imran Khan keeps repeating this narrative and it's gaining ground within Pakistan amongst uh, segments of society, including within elements of the military as well. And we've only seen uh, just last month the uh, PTI, his political party, doing very well in regional 
uh, by-elections in Punjab province, which in many ways is the heart of Pakistan itself. Now, ironically, when Khan came to power in 2018, that was thanks uh, allegedly to military uh, interference in the political uh, process. Does he have a chance to actually win the next elections legitimately in 2023? And what does that mean when it comes to Pakistan's relations with the West, especially as Imran Khan has been so critical of the U.S. in the last uh, many months? Right. So Imran Khan has uh, has managed to to rebound. Um, he was extremely unpopular. Uh, well, I think we can go back to 2018. He, he came to power with substantial support, but he was pushed across the line by the military and the intelligence services who wanted to see him in power. And, um, and after that, he was not able to govern the country well. Uh, you know, the country went through a series of uh, economic problems. Uh, the IMF negotiations with IMF kept getting stalled. Uh, and of course, the pandemic hit, uh, which uh, provided a breather of sorts. But ultimately, um, he was not able to govern well. And that took a real toll uh, on, uh, on the economy, made him unpopular. And that unpopularity uh, combined with his falling out with the, the military and specifically the army chief, um, Kamar Bajwa, um, for several different reasons. Uh, you know, I think enabled the opposition to mount this vote of no confidence back in uh, March and April, which led to his ouster. Now, a lot of us thought that that was it, that Imran Khan had been really unpopular. And, and as you note, uh, he had other ideas. Uh, he came up with this, this uh, conspiracy theory that, that his ouster was in fact engineered by the Biden administration and, and strangely is blamed a, you know, a senior, but you know, not, still not super senior bureaucrat of, of the U.S. government, you know, Assistant Secretary Don Liu as, uh, as somehow being uh, you know, being the point man in in coordinating this conspiracy against him, and um, and this conspiracy of his has resonated with a lot of Pakistanis. So recent polling suggests that um, up to I think it's a poll from the month of June. Uh, you know, any close to fifty percent uh, of a uh, uh, of the Pakistani public actually believe uh, his. Uh, his conspiracy theory, and that's up from a percentage of you know uh, I think thirty five percent immediately after his ouster. So uh, his message, uh, which is you know based on on a lie, is uh, uh, you know, appeals to a lot of Pakistanis, and that's helped him uh, regroup himself politically. He has been. Um, holding massive rallies uh, across the country. And most recently, he was able to win 20-odd uh, seats uh, uh, in, the, in the province of Punjab, uh, which puts him on track to return to power uh, whenever the elections are held 
you know, they can take place later in the year, they can take place uh, some point next year, but he's looking very strong and the incumbent um, alliance coalition government um, of uh, led by the PMLN, Prime Minister Shabash Sharif, uh, uh, including the Pakistan People's Party, among other smaller parties, uh, is looking very weak. So Imran Khan is all set to make a comeback and he could well be the next prime minister of the country. Uh, and I think that uh, will, that, you know, you know, if he returns to power, uh, that will pose problems for Pakistan's relationship with much of the Western world. I think the US government will be, uh, will not know how to engage with him. Uh, I think, you know, even uh, people will, uh, will think a few times even before you know trying to uh, to meet with him uh, because they will be concerned that uh, they will say things that he will sort of uh, he will he might go public with them and he will put a spin on them uh, so it will be very difficult for the U.S. to engage with him uh, I think you know other Western capitals would also uh, struggle. Um, and then uh, I think the bigger problem will be how he manages Pakistan's flailing economy. Uh, the Pakistan's economy is in a free fall of sorts. Pakistan's currency has, has been crashing for a while. Uh, it is out of foreign exchange reserves. You know, Pakistani uh, ministers, senior ministers, the finance minister, even the prime minister at times, you know, have to. Uh, have to run to either Beijing or some Middle Eastern capital to ask for more funds. Uh, so Pakistan really is looking at the prospect of a, of a default. Uh, and Imran Khan has contributed to this, uh, to this really precarious economic situation uh, in a major way with his populist decisions. And there are no signs that he's learned his lesson and that he thinks that he's made any major mistakes and therefore, it is likely that if he comes back to power, he'll make some of the same mistakes again. It's quite remarkable that for a man who is clearly uh, limited in his ability to govern and make decisions that are effective for the economy, for the nation, in terms of providing stability, even handling the pandemic, he ultimately banked on sound bites uh, and seemed to get away uh, with a lot of the hard questions that uh, others are not necessarily uh, afforded. We've been having this um, discussion and there doesn't seem to be any real positive news that's come out of either Afghanistan and Pakistan over the last year. And to to conclude, uh, one final question, what should we be watching out for in the months to come for both Afghanistan and Pakistan? What do you think is going to continue to be a problem? What worries you? Uh, as we go down to the end of 2022? So I'm very concerned about the economic situation in both of these countries. Um, I think Taliban's um, uh, economic management is leaves a lot to be desired. There's a real liquidity problem. The US government has been keen on you know, help, helping the de facto authorities uh, revive the central bank, and my understanding is that even that conversation remains uh, very challenging. So, overall, um, 
you know, Afghanistan, the economic situation, the humanitarian crisis there, uh, sadly, will will worsen. And uh, uh, and I I think uh, you know that's I'm going to be watching that, and there will be downstream consequences of that uh, on on how the Taliban. Uh, rule the country, the kinds of social ballot policies they enact, uh, the kinds of relationships um, they end up leaning on, uh, including relationships with some of their jihadist allies. Uh, so, you know, that's that's a that's a major concern for me. And when it comes to Pakistan, again, the economic situation is really bad, and I am not seeing a clear path by which. Pakistan makes a a recovery, and and so I think the the coming months are going to be very turbulent. And if the ceasefire between Pakistan and the TDP lapses, um, uh, I think violence in Pakistan can go up once again. Already, uh, there's, there's there's a lot of violence by some of the Baloch insurgents and separatists uh, in the country. But if you add the TDP's violence in, in that mix, I think uh, security situation in Pakistan uh, can deteriorate. So, yeah, I, you're right. There isn't a uh, there. Are, yeah, there's no real silver lining in the region at this point, uh, and uh, the overall outlook is very grim. Very grim indeed, and it's important that you identify those economic and security concerns. It's only looking at the example of Sri Lanka, who've had to deal with both combining and what was once a thriving state actually collapsing. And the recent podcast we did for NATO Deep Dive just demonstrates the intricacies of that. And when you look at Afghanistan and Pakistan, the problems are far more bare for everyone to see. It's been a huge pleasure, uh, Aswandia, to have you uh, on the podcast. I'm so grateful uh, that you could spend the time. I'm a big fan of your writings. Uh, I read them uh, in great detail. Uh, you are, as far as I'm concerned, the leading expert on Afghanistan, Pakistan. And I'm most glad, uh, Dr. Aswandia Mir, that you were able to join us on NATO Deep Dive. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm a fan as well. So it was great to, to, to chat with you. It's been a pleasure and hope to have you on the show again. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Dive. I'm your host, Dr. Sajan Gohel. Deep Dive is brought to you by NATO's Defense Education Enhancement Program. The production and research team are Marcus Andreopoulos and Victoria Jones. For additional content, including full transcripts of each episode, please visit deepportal.hq.nato.int forward slash deep dive. Please note that the views, information, or opinions expressed in the Deep Dive series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of NATO or Deep.